0: Well, very good morning to you. Is this on? Am I on? Yes, can you hear me? You can smile. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. <laughs> well, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, it's very ironic, the title of, I always try and give my talks a title, not for you guys, really, but for me, to kind of remind myself. And then my notes, the title is always at the top, so I can kind of remind myself what I get lost, what I what I'm talking about. And uh, this morning is called Changing the Paradigm. That was the title of my talk, so it's strangely appropriate. <laughs> I don't know if you ever noticed how much emotion there is in the scriptures. How much anger, joy, sadness, grief, desire, love of one kind or another. The scriptures are absolutely shot through with emotion and I know that that doesn't always come across because sometimes in church we sort of make it a little bit more even, a little more palatable. But actually, scripture is in a very emotional in many it's very human in that sense. And as you read through the scriptures, you cannot but see the humanity in the scriptures. But I started to wonder, why is it that so much of the scriptures is quite as emotional as it is? And as I thought about that, I began to think, I wonder if it's because so much of the scriptures are written around, or as a result of profound moments of change. So if you look at the Old Testament scriptures, the, the, the whole canon of the Old Testament, we're not entirely sure, but we're pretty sure, that the Old Testament is assembled around the time of Israel's exile. So that's a nation that has been put into exile and of course, you can imagine how much emotion was wrapped around a nation being sent into exile. And it's at that time that Israel collects its scriptures together and puts them into the council of camp, more or less. A few days ago, my daughter and I had an interesting discussion. The discussion went like this, darling, I don't think it's working, doing flute practice in the morning. It just doesn't seem to happen. You're just a bit distracted. Maybe we could do it in the evening. No! (laughs) No! No! Not in the evening! (laughs) The reality is, humanly, we're not very good at dealing with change. (laughs) And yes, she's only nine years old. But actually, you and I, predominantly, we don't like change. We don't like it. When change comes, we get highly emotional. We start to behave very irrationally. And this morning we read from a moment of profound change for the disciples. And we read Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. Again, somehow strangely appropriate, since you are no longer in your temple this morning. And while someone was speaking of the temple, He said, that's Jesus, as for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here. One stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So it's a bit like this. You see, I'm a religious professional. And because I'm a religious professional, everybody, every now and then somebody comes along to me and says, Hey Matt, you really ought to come here and look at these stained glass windows. You're a religious pro, you must be interested in church buildings and stained glass windows. (laughs) Kind of, sort of, not really. But it's, it's a bit like that with the disciples. The disciples were out, you know, they were there in the temple they said, Jesus, look at these stones. Isn't this impressive? Isn't this amazing? Aren't these stones extraordinary? And Jesus turns to them and he says, Actually, let me tell you something. There's going to come a day when this impressive building that you're looking at, these stones, are all going to be torn down. Now, for us, that might not sound that dramatic. But for a bunch of first century Jews, that's catastrophic you see they've already been through one of those things they know what that's like in their history they went through the destruction of Jerusalem about 400 years previous to that and they've been sent into exile when Jesus is around we're in the Second temple period and the fact that Jesus would say that temple that you rebuilt at great cost and at great pain it's coming down again huge change Huge paradigm shift. The whole hope of Israel was twofold. One, that there would be a Messiah, a new king in the Davidic line who would come and rescue Israel from her subjugation, probably to Rome predominantly. But secondly, that God's kingdom would be restored. That God himself will once again dwell with his people. And where would he dwell? in the temple. And now Jesus is saying, that temple that you're looking at, that impressive pile of stones, that's all coming down. That is a huge, huge paradigm shift. So the disciples ask him, well, teacher, when? When will this be? What will be the sign that these things are about to take place? This is such a huge thing. How are we going to know that this is going to happen? This is, by the way, Herod's Temple. Be largely being rebuilt by Herod was an enormous building. So think of, perhaps it's a bit of an exaggeration, but the National Cathedral here in Washington, D.C. And we're standing out there and I'm saying to you, this is all coming down. This is all going to be pulled down. Including the stained glass windows, which are actually rather good. I did actually get invited to go and see the stained glass windows so I thought I didn't want to do that, but actually they're great. You should go So Jesus answers disciples. He kinda answers, but he kinda doesn't. Just like Jesus. One of the hard things about um, a lot, as you get towards the end of the Gospels, you get Jesus starting to talk about the end. And it's complex. It's complex when Jesus talks about the end. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Africa, but in some parts of Africa they talk about now. And they talk about now, now. <laughs> if I say in some parts of Africa now, I mean, you know, in the next few days. I want to get my car fixed now. Okay, we'll get it done you know, in a few days. We'll see. But if I say now, now, I mean now. <laughs> and it's a bit like that with Jesus, sometimes Jesus talks about the end. And sometimes he's talking about the end end. When he's talking about the end, he's often talking about things in the near future, like the destruction of the temple, which would happen actually within 30 to 40 years of his death on the cross. But often when he's talking about the end, it seems to morph itself into the end end. In other words, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. And some of his statements then make sense only in that context. Listen to how Jesus replies. He says, watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming that I am here, the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened, these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Is he talking about the temple still? Probably not. Probably he's talking about the end end, by this point, The destruction of the temple was a huge, paradigm shift. And of course, as Christians, we'll be familiar with it, and we'll be familiar with the idea that we are now the temple. As Paul said, you, that's you and I, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place of God's life. But at the time, oh my gosh, you're kidding me, that temple's coming down. Big change, lots of emotions. Some of you will know that I'm engaged in trying to figure out how to do mission in the Mosaic District, not far from here. Just on the 495 Mosaic District. Kind of cool? Not really. It's sort of cool. It's trying very hard to be cool. Anyway,
1: there are lots
0: of people throwing uh, up lots of condos, lots of people going in. It's not a bad place to think about mission. Very diverse. And I had to go, I have to be honest, as I've been engaging in this, this is the second time I've been involved with a church farm we did one down in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was great, we ended up with our own building, all the building. But this felt very, very different. And sure, there could be all sorts of reasons why that might be true, it might be because I'm kind of leading the charge now, I was in sort of second in command on those days, that's different. But actually, as as I've been doing it this last year, I have had to go through something of a paradigm shift in my understanding of the task. And that I did not expect. That I set out with one sort of idea about what I might do. And then, I wouldn't say that it didn't work, but even as it was kind of working in the beginning, I felt very strongly that this is not the right thing to do that God was actually speaking to me very clearly and saying, these kinds of things that you're doing are not the right kinds of things. You need to stop. And because I knew one way of doing it and I was being asked to live in another way, of course I got very emotional and angry and cross and I had to deal with all that sort of feeling. And I want to just try to describe to you briefly this morning what that paradigm shift is like. And what the paradigm shift, I think, and I hope I'm not a false prophet this morning, Jesus warns about false prophets when you get towards the end, so be careful. What I'm saying might not be true, but it might be. That in North America, and this won't be unfamiliar to you, we are going through something of a paradigm shift. There is a big shift going on in the culture. It's been going on for a while, not that long, but it's probably more profound than we think it is. And when you think about the task of mission, it goes for me, this is where I've got to, something like this. Let's imagine, for the sake of argument, that mission is like Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. You know that story? So Jesus is standing at a well. This is not some spiritual well, particularly, although it's Jacob's well, there's a story behind it. But it's a simple place where people come to meet a basic human need. Water. So Jesus stands there, I'll play Jesus, got the collar on me, and there's a woman. And they enter into a conversation. That conversation has a particular character. Because I'm close to the woman, I'm gonna use a certain tone of voice because I know that she can read my face and my gestures. There's an intimacy. She's looking in my eyes. You can tell there's a lot of non-verbal communication going on. I'm going to use certain gestures because she's close, right? And probably certain kinds of language. But let's imagine, for the sake of argument, that she starts to move away, from it. and she's now standing about halfway down the aisle. What happens? Microphones aside, amplification aside. What do I do? I'm going to start to change my tone of voice, right? Probably my gestures are going to get a bit bigger. And I might just simplify my language a little bit. Because there's a little distance between me and her. And just for the sake of argument, let's say that's like Billy Graham. The late, great Billy Graham. Who in the 60s and 70s learnt as an evangelist, how to change the language a little bit, change the tone of voice, and change the gestures for a culture that was predominantly not that far away from the church. The church was still basically held in good stead by most people, even if you didn't believe me. But let's move her further back. Let's see that she's now standing by the door like that lady with her chocolate. What happens again? There's another adjustment, isn't there? There's an adjustment in my tone of voice, my gestures, my language, because she's even further away. And let's say that's like the Seeker friendly church movement. As people have moved away, we have our language, even simpler, our gestures even clearer, our tone of voice, more appropriate to the listeners. But watch what happens next. What happens when the woman or actually our friend there standing. What happens if he now leaves the building? Does it matter anymore that I practice simple language to explain the gospel? That I modify my gestures? That I modify my tone of voice? Does that make any difference? What do I now have to do as the? primary missional task. There's only one thing to do now. I've got to find some way of getting back in the same space with that person. Otherwise, it does not matter how effectively I communicate. And I feel like a lot of what we're doing inside the church is changing our gestures, changing our changing our language. But we haven't fully understood or stood understood deeply enough that we are no longer in the same space. So none of that really makes much difference. And that the mission task is now finding ways to build wells, where we can once again occupy the same space, physical, metaphorically, however you interpret it, as other people. We've got to find ways of digging where people will want to come, not because of the Christian message, but to meet basic human needs. I came across an example of this a little while ago. Um, uh, Out in Stirling, there's a church. who have built a coffee shop. Nothing very spectacular about that. Christians have done coffee shops for a while now. But they've been very, very clever about how they've done it. It's not a Christian coffee shop. It's just a coffee shop. They've done it in an area which is a bit back cave-ish. You know what I mean by that? People paint nice houses, they go to their nice cars, they go out to the garage goes up, they go to work, they come back from work, they go out to the garage goes down, that's it, you <laughs> know, And so he began to realise what can we do to build a well in an area like this where people don't know. Let's build a coffee shop. It's not a Christian coffee shop. You walk in there, it looks like Starbucks and it's slightly nicer. But then he started to think, well we need more than just a coffee shop. So what they've done is at the back, there's a drop-off area for kids so that um, uh, um, men and women can come in and they can leave their kids a bit like the so fast food drums, you know, those places where the kids can play. Okay. That man drives the coffee shop, he says, to seven, eight, o'clock. there are families <coughs> in there because they can just get some time off from the kids and have a reasonable conversation. You know what that's like for are of the death, right? But they haven't stopped there. They are right next door to a daycare center. So there are people who are bringing their kids in there to drop for daycare. Oh, they happen to be underneath a typing company. So, there are people coming in and out all the time because they're doing major deals in their lives, where they're either buying homes, selling homes, doing all that kind of thing. Oh, there's also a doctor's office in there. And right off this coffee shop is a, um, is a, a sort of uh, what you might call a sanctuary. So, effectively, what they've done is said, in order, and this was a fairly large church, suburban church, that made a huge shift, a huge change, because they just felt like we cannot go on. Pretend that by changing our gestures, changing our tone of voice, changing our language, that we are communicating because we're not in the same space. So the only thing we can do is first find a way to get back into the same space as other people. His coffee shop manager, who used to work, I'm not getting down in the temple pool, but used to work in the church, he spent nine years working as a person who oversaw children's ministry. I had more conversations about Christ in nine months running this coffee shop than I did in nine years. Why? It's very simple. They built a well. And all kinds of people are there at the well. Because they're there, just like Jesus and the Samaritan, all sorts of conversations spring up. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? And that's what I feel like when we got to what I'm trying to do down in Mosaic. I'd love to, and I think in a couple of weeks, I'd love to sh- share that vision of where we've got to and how we think we might achieve that. But I've got to the point where I feel like no don't need to stop doing this. We need to keep on doing this. But we need to take seriously the task of building worlds. Building worlds are common, shared, human need and interest. That means we're going to need a lot of people, not just me, but the church as a whole, different kinds of skills, businessmen and businesswomen who are beginning to understand their role in doing that kind of well and if we can do this, I probably need to do it as a business. I'm not a businessman. So I need business people, so I'm gathering business people to figure out how we can do this together. But I'm fairly, fairly convinced in my heart that rather like Jesus pointing at the temple and saying, this is changing that we're in the midst of a fundamental shift. A fundamental shift. Fundamental. A paradigm shift. And our task as a church, together, is not to ignore it or pretend it away. Not to be scared about it, not to get too emotional, not too angry, but to figure out how about the sorts of changes and things that are going on around us, that evoke all, all sorts of emotions, positive, and negative, somewhere in between. Would you help us understand all that you are speaking to us, that you are guiding us, and you are asking us for your sake to engage in the mission, that you came to, uh, to achieve. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.